Nehemiah chapter 8, the first 12 verses. And I chose this passage today because, like I said, we'll be studying the, uh, Peter's first letter. And in this letter, we read of the need to do things God's way, even when it's tempting to do things our way. And here in the eighth chapter of Nehemiah, we have an example of God's people recognizing that it is gracious of God to give us his way. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shemah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the, the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Well, now for our New Testament lesson. If you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We'll be reading the conclusion of Peter's letter in a moment, so I thought it wouldn't hurt to read the introduction to give it a, a, a bookend, to give us the beginning and end of what Peter's letter is all about. First Peter, beginning with the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And now for our sermon text this morning, if you would just turn a couple of pages to the last three verses of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the reading of God's holy word. Well, here we are at the end of 1 Peter. Uh, I started this sermon series, and I've been preaching mostly in the evening service. I started about a year and a half ago. I thought to preach through 1 Peter because I read an article that made me interested to preach through 2 Peter. And then I thought, what's the most important background to 2 Peter but 1 Peter? And it's been a joy all the way through. Now, Peter says here he's written briefly. The word count in Greek is about 1,700 words. In English, it's about 2,400 words. So Peter's been brief, but I've been long. Every single one of my sermons has been longer than Peter's entire letter, even though I've been preaching through three to seven or eight verses at a time. Sometimes I think that I wish that I could make these sermons shorter, and that would actually be a gift, but... If I could say in a few words, well, how can I, if God can say it in a few words, how can I improve on perfection, right? Well, Peter's last few verses here are meant to conclude 
and sum up the entire letter. We've come to the end of Peter's letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Most likely colonists from Rome, so people who have already been converted to the faith and they're being sent off to expand Rome's kingdom and Rome's glory. But they have a mission from God as well, don't they? They have a mission from God to proclaim his glory, as we'll talk about in a little bit. But how does Peter summarize his message to them? Well, Peter speaks with reference to the redemption that they have in Christ. With, he speaks of the sufferings that they're encountering for the sake of the gospel. And he speaks of God's way to get through that suffering. And all of it summed up together is what? The true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the grace of God that Jesus' resurrection gives you new birth and an inheritance in his kingdom. It's the grace of God that you will suffer for the gospel. It's God's grace that he strengthens you to endure suffering. And it's God's grace that when Christ returns in glory, he will remove that suffering from you. Well, because Peter is summarizing his letter, that's what we're going to do too. We're not going to go through these three verses. Well, we will, but not just three, three verses. We're going to go through the whole letter. We're going to do that because these three verses, they say some things, and we'll sum it up at the end, but they don't say a lot on their own. These three verses that we've just read say much more with reference to the entire rest of the letter. Sometimes, of course, in fact, often, it's good to go through the scriptures with a fine-tooth comb to look at every detail. That's what most of my preaching through this letter has been. But sometimes it's good to look at scripture at a higher level, to get the big picture, to see how everything connects together. Basically, not to lose the forest for the trees. So we're going to go through an overview of this letter. We're going to read some largish chunks of this text. I've already done that in the uh, New Testament lesson before the sermon text. We'll mostly avoid the tricky passages to interpret. I've already discussed those in detail, and if you've got any tricky passages from 1 Peter, you can ask me after the service. I'd be happy to talk about them. But the goal here is to get an overall sense of the letter, how it fits together, and to see how you need God's grace to stand firm in the Christian life. And here in God's word, here in this letter, you find God's grace to stand firm. And we find it first in Christ's work of redemption, which leads to holiness. And this holiness is expressed in three ways. Holiness and love for each other. Holiness in proclaiming God's excellencies by honorable conduct. And holiness in suffering for Christ's name. Well, first, we turn back to our New Testament lesson from earlier in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, where we read 
of Christ's work of redemption, God's grace in Christ's work of redemption. And just breezing through these verses quickly, we see in verse 3 that God is merciful to save sinners. It is thanks to God's great mercy on you that he saves sinners like you and me. It's not anything good that's found in you, but because of his great mercy. He saves sinners like you by giving you new birth through Christ's resurrection from the dead. You were dead in sin, but God, by his grace, gives you new life in Christ. And just as you were passive in your spiritual birth, you had no responsibility for your natural birth. Excuse me. I didn't do any work in bringing myself into this world. Well, you too owe all the thanks to your spiritual birth to God in Christ. You come to him by faith, not by any good works that are in you. You come to a living hope, embracing Christ by faith. And this hope is a confident assurance. This isn't wishful thinking. Oh, I hope that it'll rain tomorrow, I think might be what we're thinking right now. This is a confident assurance. It's not wishful thinking. And it is a living hope. It is a hope that brings life not death and futility. Well, this hope, by God's grace, brings you to an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. You will have a share in the new creation when God makes all things new. And this share in the kingdom of heaven, you don't have it yet. You will possess it when Christ is glorified when he returns. But in the meantime, you have an assurance from God that it is untouchable. It's free from sin. It's free from death. It's even free from the ravages of time and aging. It'll only get better with the weight. And it's kept in heaven for you, safe from all harm, so that you can be sure that you will have it in its perfection when Christ returns. And in this knowledge, secure in this knowledge that you have been born again, that you have new life, and that you have an inheritance waiting for you, you can rejoice in trials. Because you have a confidence that tested faith will give you a share in Christ's own praise and glory and honor when he is revealed. Thanks to this, you have a love for Christ and faith in him that empower your perseverance, a love that gives you the desire to persevere in the gospel, and a confidence in him that makes it so that you are strong to persevere. And as if you needed anything more, we read in verses 10 through 12 that the revelation of Christ to the prophets gives you even more reason to have faith in him because they did not see Christ face to face. They only had a foreshadowing and they treasured it so much that they loved him and diligently searched so that they would not miss him if he arrived in their day. 
And if the prophets who only had a foreshadowing so diligently sought after Christ, how much more do you who have seen the revelation of Christ and his glory in the scriptures, how much more reason do you have to put all of your confidence and diligence in him? So there you have Christ's work of redemption. You have the work that he has done in you. He has changed you. You were dead, but he's made you alive. He gives you strength to endure so that you will arrive safe at your inheritance that is kept safe for you. But he has changed you. So out of this, you must act differently. If we look to chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, we read how Christ's work of redemption leads you to grow in holiness and the fear of the Lord. And so now I read from those eight verses. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christ's work of redemption gives you the gift of holiness, gives you the gift of being set apart for his purposes and living in them and walking in them. And Christ's work of redemption gives you the gift of reverent, loving fear of God to encourage you to walk in this holiness. For the fear of the Lord hears his wrath for sinners, but does not tremble and cower as though God is ready to strike you down. But rather, when you hear of God's wrath for sinners, you recognize his warnings. You recognize that he intends for you, his children, to embrace him in love and avoid that fearful outcome. The fear of the Lord in the heart of a believer is not something that causes you to tremble before him, but rather encourages you to run to him and to experience his embrace as a father. And so now we turn to instructions for how to put holiness and godly loving fear into practice. For we read of how God calls you to holiness and showing love for one another. And so now I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 5. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory 
like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, here Peter describes what we call the peace and the purity of the church. And what we find in these verses is that the peace of the church is based on the purity of the church. And the purity of the church depends on our adherence to God's word. For it is God's word that builds you up into Christian love and brotherhood. Peter writes that you have been born through the living and abiding word of God. And a few few verses later, by the good news that was preached to you. Now, ancestry and national identity for most people makes an important part of who you are. And we can see this today in people seeking to learn more about their ancestry by genealogical research and uh, taking DNA tests to find out what percentage of you comes from what country or continent or ethnic group. But you know what? Your ancestors are dead. Your family history is perishable seed. But you know what God's word is? God's word here is imperishable seed. God's word is alive forever. Now, I'm not telling you that your family history, your family story is unimportant. But your Life with Christ is so much more important. In Christ, you are born of an imperishable seed. It is faith in God's word. God's word is that imperishable seed. Faith in God's word is what causes you to be born again in Christ. And it makes you members of one family in the church. No matter what your history is according to the perishable seed of the world. You are born by faith in Christ's word. You are born into a new family, into a new nation in Christ. So you see how the unity of the church is built on uh, the purity of the church, the purity of the church's doctrine. And this is not a purity that picks nits at each other always inspecting one another with a microscope. You can see Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 for more information on that. We're not here to be constantly inspecting one another, although we are here to encourage one another in the truth. But God's ultimate goal is unity in the church, not uniformity as though we all need to be exactly the same. For devotion to God's word should build you up into sincere brotherly love. That's the the peace of the church. 
And this is a theme that Peter revisits again in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, and chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, where Peter commands love for one another that manifests in unity of mind, sympathy for one another, humility, forgiveness of sins, hospitality, and service, among other qualities and actions. But these verses here that I've just read lay the foundation for all of those commands later in this letter. But what we see here in these verses is that this brotherly love has a purpose that goes far beyond simply enjoying one another's company. For God is building you up by his word into priests in a spiritual house. You are living stones in the house of God, in his meeting place, so that you, as priests in this living house, have access to God through Christ. You are not only the priests who have access to God through Christ, but you are also the place where God is encountered. And so through faith in Christ, you can draw near to God and offer him your praise and bring your needs to him. For God is building you up into a monument for his glory. And you do it by being holy in your faithfulness to the word and in your love and fellowship with one another. And so we turn now to how God is building you up in holiness as this monument to proclaim his excellencies. For in chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, we read that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God has built you together into this spiritual house for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies. And then here in verses 11 through 12, we have instructions for practical ways to do so through your conduct. For Peter says to keep your conduct honorable. You proclaim God in part by keeping your conduct honorable in the sight of those around you. Now, God has made you into a new nation, into a new family. And so you are sojourners and exiles in the place where you live. And so just as somebody who comes to the United States from someplace else would want to leave a good impression on Americans, or you would, I think, hope to leave a good impression if you go to England or France or somewhere else, well, as foreigners and exiles, wherever you go, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, you have an obligation to represent your nation and your family 
well. And so this next big chunk of the letter, and I won't read all of, all of these like I have so far, but this next chunk of the letter, starting with chapter 2, verse 13, largely consists of practical instruction for staying out of needless conflict. We'll get to needful conflict at some point. But Peter starts with keeping your conduct honorable by staying out of needless conflict. And he begins in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, with submission to human authorities. He writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You are to honor those authorities that God has placed over you in the civil sphere. There's no getting around it. But you don't have to do it because you like the authority. Now, you may like the authority, you may not. That's neither here nor there as far as I'm concerned. But you do it for the Lord's sake. You do it out of that loving fear of God. You do it out of respect for God. You can read a lot about this towards the end of Calvin's Institutes, by the way. He's got a fantastic chapter on obeying the civil magistrate. Even if the authority mistreats you, which Peter is writing to people who are being mistreated. Peter was mistreated. The authorities themselves mistreated the believers. The authorities sometimes turned a blind eye to other people who were mistreating the believers. Even if the authority mistreats you, you obey him cheerfully as long as he does not tell you to disobey God. Like I said, we'll get to needful conflict. But Peter says that in so doing, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There are those in the world who will see your godly conduct in obedience to the civil authorities and who will recognize that you're being treated unfairly. And they may even come to faith in Christ through your good conduct. So, step one to keeping your conduct honorable, submit to human authorities. Second, in chapter 2, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 7, is to have healthy household relationships. Now, Greco-Roman culture considered the household to be the foundation of society. And if the household was the foundation of society, that foundation's bedrock was in the man of the house holding authority over his wife, his children, and his slaves. But Greco-Roman culture put an unhealthy emphasis on that, on that authority, almost to the exclusion of loving concern. Not entirely to the exclusion, but almost. Greco-Roman culture did not bother to give any instruction to wives, children, and slaves. Wives, children, and slaves were not thought to have any agency. So all instruction was for the master of the house to be taught how to wield his authority. Well, Peter's letter instructs those under authority. Peter by extension, God, for these are God's words, recognizes the agency of those under authority. 
and their personal accountability to God. Now, I said I'm not going to get into many controversial passages, but we've got to have a quick word about slavery. The Bible explicitly condemns the form of slavery that was practiced in the U.S. and much of the Western world until recently. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, prescribes the death penalty for those who kidnap. And the form of slavery that we had here involved the kidnapping and, and, and sale of human beings as personal possessions. The Bible condemns that in no uncertain terms. The New Testament consistently condemns any attitude toward people that sees them as a tool to be used for your own game. And a careful reading of the Bible will show that the marriage relationship and the relationship between parents and children all come from God's good creation. But slavery is never credited to God's good creation order. Now, there's many more things I could say. That'll be enough for now. Slavery does not stand under the scrutiny of Scripture. Nevertheless, Peter addresses slaves. Peter understands that he's not writing to people with the power to put an end to slavery. He's writing to people who have to somehow live their lives in the system. And so Peter addresses slaves, telling them to serve faithfully and cheerfully. But they have a brother in doing this. They have their brother Christ. For Christ himself suffered while never doing any wrong. And his suffering led to salvation and glory. So suffering innocently is a good thing in God's sight. Likewise, wives are to maintain respectful, holy, and gentle conduct. Not because these are particularly feminine qualities. It's not like men should be brash, rude, and bossy. Remember, Jesus was gentle and lowly. I don't think there was a manlier man than him. But such conduct proclaims God's glory may even bring their husbands to salvation. And finally, Peter says something very interesting here in chapter 3, verse 7. It says to husbands to be gentle and wise with your wives. And this comes with a stern warning. You, if you're married, you are accountable to God for how you treat your wife. God will not hear your prayers, Peter says. God will not hear your prayers if you mistreat your wife. And so these themes of faithfully submitting to authority and faithfully using your authority also come back in chapter 5, where believers are to be under the authority of elders. The elders are to use that authority with humility. Finally, we look at how to be honorable in all your conduct by blessing those around you. For in chapter 3, verse 9, we read, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Even when you are mistreated for your faith, 
you are to seek the good of those who want to hurt you. Now, this command to bless is a Greek word that primarily refers to calling upon God to do good for those who hurt you. You call upon God to do good to your adversaries. And this word also has a secondary meaning of you personally doing good for your adversaries. And Peter says that you will prove those accusations false by seeking the good of those who hate you. And so in all things, you are to show the world that you are not worse citizens for your faith in Christ, but rather that you are better citizens. You are better members of the community around you, keeping your conduct honorable among those around you. And in so doing, you will avoid needless arguments and hostility. But now we're going to turn to needful hostility. Because you cannot eliminate all hostility. And so we see that holiness means being prepared to suffer for Christ's name. I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And I'm going to continue in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so we see here how suffering for the gospel and the reward when Christ returns are woven throughout the letter. You don't find it just in those passages I just read. You see it everywhere in this, in this letter. For Christ himself suffered deeply in this life. He suffered the common sufferings of this life. Sickness, tiredness, hunger. But he suffered far more deeply than that. He was hated by those who should have accepted him, by those religious leaders who should have embraced him with joy. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He endured the most painful and most humiliating form of execution possible. He endured all this suffering despite his absolute innocence. He deserved none of it. Well, being united to Christ, you too will suffer for faith in him. Now, the people to whom Peter wrote this letter were suffering unofficial persecution. They suffered the loss of employment. They were disowned by family. They were generally insulted, and jokes were made about them in the public square. 
Like I said, their sufferings are referred to frequently in this letter. Throughout the centuries, believers have been tortured and killed for their faith. Now, you and I have it relatively easy in this time and place. But there is still hostility out there. And it will be brought down on your head at one time or another. But you've got to be aware. There is a reward for suffering in a godly way. But there is no suffering for your own sins. As we just read in chapter 4, verse 15, you should not expect a reward if you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. Well, I've more or less got those covered, right? Even as a meddler. Don't expect a reward if you suffer even as someone who doesn't stick your nose where it belongs. There is a high bar that Christ calls you to. But he gives you strength. He gives you strength. He gives you holiness. So that you will suffer innocently. He gives you strength to endure. He has the strength to endure suffering, doesn't he? He endured his own path in life. He endured the cross until all your debt was paid. Through all of this, it was in his power to come down from the cross. It was his power to lead an easy, cushy life. It was in his power to be welcomed and glorified by the world. But he had the strength to endure in suffering. And he proved it by coming back to life again after his suffering was over. He survived his suffering. And he has the strength that he now gives to you as a gift so that you too can endure your suffering in faithfulness to God. He prepares you to make your defense with gentleness and respect, as we saw in chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, we see how he gives you this strength, especially through prayer, even as you go toe-to-toe with the devil himself. But what does endurance mean? Well, it doesn't mean doing things your way. It means doing things God's way. He gives you the strength to endure according to his holiness. And he promises you a reward for a little bit of suffering will lead you to an eternal reward. Now Christ has gained a reward already. He was raised from the dead. He was lifted up to heaven where he now sits at the Father's right hand on his throne. He has won for himself a nation of people. You, his family. But there's one thing that he still awaits. He awaits his return in glory. He awaits his vindication in the sight of his enemies. And he's waiting to give you, his people, your final share in the kingdom of heaven. But he will have it. It has been assured by his victory over death and sin. 
His final victory, his final vindication is coming. And so in union with Christ, you suffer with him. And in union with Christ, you also have a reward. In this life, you have peace of conscience. You have an awareness of God's love for you. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. You have strength to persevere to the end, no matter what the trial. And most of all, you have an inheritance coming to you. You have a share in the kingdom of God coming to you when Christ is revealed in glory. So that's the overall message of the letter of this first letter of Peter. Christ's work of redemption has given you birth into a new spiritual life. You are called to holiness in this life. And you put holiness into practice in love for one another, in proclaiming God's excellencies through honorable conduct, and in suffering for Christ's name. Well, all that's left is to look at how these last three verses tie up these themes. And I promise you, I've gone through three verses at a time at some length in the past, but not today. I'll be brief. But three things stand out about these three verses summing up the entire letter. Christian unity, standing firm in God's grace, and the peace of Christ. So first, the importance of Christian unity appears in this passage. For Christian living is a team effort, and Peter reveals that even Christian ministry is a team effort. For Peter is not alone. He writes of Silvanus, the faithful brother. Now, Silvanus delivered this letter and possibly wrote it on Peter's behalf, or at Peter's dictation, I should say. Well, if he walked, this was more than two months. It's the distance, he's gone, he, he's gone the distance from, from Rome in Italy to Ankara in Turkey. So it was over two months if he walked. Now, he may well have traveled by ship, which would be probably a couple of weeks, but this was not a a carnival cruise line. Back then, if you were in his socioeconomic status, you were sleeping on the deck of the ship. Maybe if if you had some means, you had a tent to sleep on the ship. And there was nothing to keep the ship stable. So if you've ever been on rough seas... You know what his journey might have been like. Well, this Silvanus is almost certainly the Silas who has appeared frequently in the New Testament, accompanying Paul on missionary travels, co-authoring the letters to the Thessalonians and delivering other letters for the apostles. Peter is eager to commend this faithful brother who has been of such help in the ministry of the gospel. We have here a reference to she who is at Babylon, a reference to the brothers and sisters who are in Rome. This is such a comforting word that you have brothers and sisters who share in your exile status. As one commentator put it, that this reference to to Babylon identifies both the author and his Christian community as sharing with the readers an exile status. So the whole church is united together in this foreign status as an exile. And indeed, this is a sign of your being elect. And then we have Mark. Most likely John Mark, the man who Acts tells us, has traveled with Paul and Barnabas on missionary journeys. 
And church tradition says that this Mark is Peter's interpreter, the man who faithfully recorded Peter's teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Humanly speaking, we wouldn't have Peter's teachings without him. So Mark is so precious to Peter that he calls on him as his son in the faith. And one thing I love about these these things that Peter says about his brothers and sisters and colleagues is you get a sense of joy. You get a sense of joy in this fellowship despite the suffering as Peter refers to these friends in the gospel. He says to greet one another, you too must hang together if you are going to endure. Wherever you find yourself in the world or in history, whatever sufferings you encounter, you must hang together. And this kiss of love does something interesting. For early Christian worship was heavily inspired, of course, by the way worship was conducted in the synagogues. But this kind of greeting was not conducted in the synagogues. So this kind of greeting, this way of treating one another, brings to the worship service an element of the home, of fellowship and hospitality. So this is not just a court gathering in God's presence, but it's a family reunion as we gather together before God. You and I are a true family. And so you stand firm in God's grace together. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is both a command and a promise. You are commanded to stand firm in God's grace, and you have the promise that his grace is able to make you stand. These are the things that you need to stand firm in trials. There's no other way to do it. As you listen to people with ideas for how to endure, be very careful. See if what they say fits with Scripture, not if you can twist Scripture to make their way fit. For this, these words, these few words that Peter has written, are the true grace of God. This is what you need to endure, not some other way. When you walk in this way, peace comes to you in Christ. God gives you peace in Christ. He gives you the sure knowledge that His grace makes you endure. He gives you confidence that this is the way to walk. And so in God's way, you find perfect peace no matter what you face. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this grace of God that is able to make us stand. We thank you for these few words that you have given us. We thank you that we can have every confidence that we will stand. And we look forward to enjoying the kingdom of God together with our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.